This episode, a Hyde Park Haven for gaming and maker creativity. Hello, hello, and welcome to the 19th episode of Board Game Times, the podcast about the people, places, and events making tabletop gaming great in Chicago. As always, I'm your host, Clark Bender, and thanks for being here. I can't believe it, but it's already February of 2022. Hope you've all been taking advantage of the cold weather by staying inside and playing some games. I myself have been taking some games off the shelf and reacquainting myself with the rules, Also got my regular Gloomhaven group, and I think this past week we might have all reached level 9 with our characters, which was quite an achievement. Also had the chance to play the new game Ark Nova, which is going to be coming out in a month or so. Gotta say it looks pretty good. In a moment, we'll get to this week's guests, Ashlyn Sparrow and Kent Lambert of the University of Chicago's Weston Game Lab and Hack Arts Lab, respectively. But first, a little sad news to share. I just received an email this morning saying that Cat and Mouse Games here in Chicago is closing. The store, if you're not familiar with it, is in the 1100 block of West Madison in the West Loop area. It's actually their second location. They were originally in the Bucktown area, and they've been open since 2008. So, sad to see them go. It sounds like it's more of an early retirement decision than a business decision per se, but always hate to see a game store close down. Cat and Mouse wasn't particularly conveniently located near me, so I only got there a few times, but you could just tell it was a really great store. Lots of toys in addition to their games, really catered to the family and kids. I'm sure that neighborhood's really going to be feeling the loss. Best of luck to Cat and Mouse's owners and their employees, and of course, their fans and customers. Details about the closing and some final sales are yet to come, and there's a hint that a different store is going to be opening in the space. But no specifics about that and whether it's going to also be a game and or a toy store. So rest in play, cat and mouse games. So now let's get to this week's guests, here to tell us all about a fantastic gaming and creating space in the city's Hyde Park neighborhood. I'm joined today by Ashlyn Sparrow and Kent Lambert. Ashlyn is the assistant director of the Weston Game Lab, and Kent is the assistant director of the Hack Arts Lab. Both of those are located at the Media Arts Data Design Center at the University of Chicago, a small private school you may have heard of here on the south side of Chicago. Kent, Ashlyn, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. I was really intrigued to hear about what you are doing down there. So, let me ask you a couple of questions just about your general background first, and then we'll get into talking about Hack and Weston and go from there. Just tell me briefly a little bit about your journey to the University of Chicago, background, where you're from. I don't know if either of you are native Chicagoans originally or not, and uh, we'll go from there. Uh, so I am not an original Chicagoan. I am originally from Pennsylvania. Uh, and so my background's IT, game design, game development. That's what I went to school for. And by happenstance, one of my professors after uh, graduation from Carnegie Mellon told me of a job at the University of Chicago where I can make educational games. Never actually heard of you, Chicago, to be quite honest, because I'm not from the Midwest. Uh, But I was excited about this idea of living in Chicago and then ended up here and have been here for the past nine years. Um, And over time has transitioned to the Weston Game Lab, where I work and kind of uh, help students learn about board games and design their own board games and other digital games, et cetera. Kent, so how about yourself? How was What was your journey to the University of Chicago? I grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado, uh, but I've been in the Midwest since 1995 when I uh, left for college. I've lived in Chicago for 20 years. I went to film school. I did film and, and video production. I was a music major briefly. And so my, my primary kind of creative activities, artistic practice for many years has been sort of sound and music focused with, with a good amount of experimental video. And in the last decade, my videos have almost exclusively like involved machinima. So like riffing on uh, clips from video games and trying to do sort of meditative, meditative works, like exploring my own 
conflicted relationship to the consumerism and the pleasure and all the, the big heady mix of wonderful things that uh, are involved in modern video games. And so in terms of what brought me to the to the Hackarts Lab and the Western Game Lab, been with the University of Chicago a, a, a little bit less than Ash. Uh, I worked at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago for many, many years with a focus on sort of video compression. I guess we both work in an academic setting, but I've never thought of myself as an academic. I don't have any advanced degrees. Same. And I've been in this like staff category in higher ed for like a really long time. I think, yeah, two decades, basically. Uh, I've never actually taught classes, but for many years, I've been in a position to sort of um, part of a team that helps faculty and departments figure out how to bring technology into their classes. Um, so Ash and I work for a department called Arts Technology that encompasses our labs and some other facilities. Um, and three years ago, when the MAD Center was coming into to being, Ash and I were both on a committee with some architects and some higher powers at the university and key faculty of planning a new center that would have a, a collection of member labs, including the freshly created Weston Game Lab and the pre-existing HackArts Lab, which is a maker space with 3D printers and laser cutters. And so um, Ash and I applied for these positions that were created kind of out of this committee. We got each got these jobs. And, and uh, once, you know, once we had transitioned into them, we were we had a few months to figure out, okay, what are we going to do with these labs when this place opens in two, three months? Part of that for Ash was ordering a huge collection of board games. And I had not so realized, good. yeah, I, I had not really played board games since, since I was a kid in the eighties, essentially. Um, and I probably jumped ahead. I, I would expect you might've had questions about board games later on. That's my rambling answer of how I ended up in my current position. Before we get to the lab discussion, uh, I want to also quickly touch on a couple of things you talked about, your background for both of you. Ashlyn, you briefly talked about your gaming background. I want to ask you both a little bit about what your background in games had been up to that point. Kent, you sort of hinted that you hadn't had any kind of formal game background, but maybe you played games with the family. I'm just curious what that was. Maybe you want to take the question first. Sure. Yeah. So as a kid, you know, Coming, growing up in the 80s and kind of coming of age in the 90s, games were a pretty common activity in my family. But, you know, what I remember is like the typical American 80s titles, Sorry, Monopoly, maybe some Hungry Hungry Hippos at an early age. I remember like, you know, playing Candyland at a birthday party or something. As we get into the 90s, I think we had like Taboo. I don't know if you remember that one. Pictionary, you know. And then I feel like by the time I got into high school, board games that that just was not a thing that I did really all the way up until three years ago when when Ash and I started working together I just had not played board games and then in terms of video games I had an NES as a kid and then you know would kind of keep tabs on it if I had friends who had consoles I'd sort of you know sample them but it wasn't until 10 years ago that I made a concerted I, I bought a PlayStation 3 and really dove into the current generation of video games primarily to make sort of art videos but this is an analog game conversation, so I'll leave it at that. <laughs> it's all good. We like gaming <laughs> of all sorts here. But yes, the podcast is focused on analog. Ashlyn, how about yourself? You clearly have a strong background in video games. Absolutely. Um, so I've been playing games for uh, a while in the late 90s, early 2000s is when I came of age. So I played a lot of video games growing up, a lot of Japanese role-playing games like Xenogears, Final Fantasy series, I played a lot of fighting games, was really good at Tekken in my school. Like I was known as like the gamer person, like it, it we were able to have a Christmas party and people were able to bring in their consoles. And I was like, you know, I will buy someone pizza if you could beat me in Tekken. No one could beat me at Tekken. Like that was how good I was uh, back in the day. Tekken 3 was my jam. And so I've always been obsessed with video games, games in general. Um, I play quite a few board games, but not any of the kind of German style board games like Settlers of Catan. That didn't really happen until um, I went to college, but grew up on classic Monopoly. Sorry, my family plays a lot of spades. That's just like a thing that I think a lot of like Black Americans play. I don't know what's going on, but like it is really serious when you play spades. And so uh, learning, you know, playing with friends, playing with family.
families. Um, when I went to college, I was really intense about wanting to learn how to make games, specifically digital games, because that's what I grew up with. Um, and so I went and got my degree in IT, wanting to like manage computers and servers and whatnot. But then I went and got my master's in entertainment technology because I wanted to like double down on this idea of using games as a medium to explore a lot of things, not only to entertain people, but to educate, uh, bring awareness and get people to start thinking about other systems and rule-based systems that they interact with in everyday life. So once I got to college, that's really why I started to play a lot more board games. um, And especially once I got to the university, um, because I started to run game programs for our high school students where we wanted to teach them how to design their own games. Uh, knowing the technical divide that's happening in Chicago, I thought it was best if we started with board games, since a lot of people have never created a board game, whether you're, you went to a private school or a, a public school or a charter school, the majority of high school students have never played or made a board game. And so that was really where I took a deep dive into <laughs> board game geek, what's popping off there, what's the best games, how do I introduce people into more complicated games, but besides Uno, Monopoly, and Sorry, um, and really getting them to, you know, just have fun and play. That's great. Do you find that there is a lot of overlap between game theory as relates to video games and board games? Are there significant differences between the two, or do you think they're very much overlaid on top of one another? There's a lot of overlap. When I work with students who say, I want to be a game designer, I always have to take a moment to kind of parse what is it that they mean, because when I think of digital games, there's a lot of other technical components attached to that, whether it's programming, sound design, the visual aspects of this, such that it's like, well, if you want to be a game designer, that's just a person who makes games. And if you're really interested in an experience and rules and systems, you could make a digital game, but you could also make a board game in some way, shape or fashion, and you would still be a game designer. And so when people first start off, I always recommend them working on a board game or a role playing, a tabletop role playing game, because then they don't actually have to focus on all the other complicated things uh, that come with a digital game. You quite literally have to know how to write rules and make a really fun, engaging experience with words with, you know, maybe certain components that you might have in your house, or, you know, you could go to a, a makerspace like at that Hack Arts Lab and 3D print or laser cut your own pieces to really make an experience work. It, a board game, a, a role-playing game has to work on its own. And the people are the ones who are running it. Your players are running it. So if you really want to know how to make a good game experience for people and, and work with all the range of human emotions, Analog games are absolutely the way to go. And then you don't have to worry about like pesky, like software updates. Like Monopoly has been the same for a long time. <laughs> and like, you know, it's it's still going, it's still going strong, right? Sellers of Catan has been around for a while. It, it's still going strong. So is Carcassonne. So like, there's something really powerful about the, the analog and how it's even making resurgence such that there's absolutely overlap, but depending on what people really want to do, I always steer them towards board games. Oh, that's great. And I want to get back to this discussion, but I want to take a little time to kind of talk about the labs, your day job. So Kent, you had talked about going through the process of setting the labs up. And what was that timeline like? What what time were we talking about? So the, the MAB Center opened on February 25th, 2019. So we're coming up on, on three years of existence. And so Ash, it was, I think, like, the very beginning of December 2019 or 2018, I think December 3rd was our first day. And we were supposed to open on like February 9th or something like that. So we had just over two months. The space was totally still raw. It was like a construction, a hard hat zone and no furniture, nothing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The furniture was like, you know, on route or back ordered. We had a whiteboard and we're brainstorming. We also had to hire uh, a lot of students to to help us run the space because it was intended to have pretty expansive hours, you know, open every day, uh, almost all day, up to like the day before the weekend, you know, the two days before our uh, soft opening, 
you know, Ash and I spent that whole weekend. We we went to IKEA and got a, a shelving system to put the board games on. Uh, where else did we go that day? I feel like we did. Oh, we went to Chicago Land Games Dice Dojo to buy a bunch yep. of games because Ash had Ash had been ordering from you know where you could order on the internet, mostly Amazon. And my memory of it is you were getting increasingly frustrated with with yep. botched deliveries. And I was like, yep. Ash, I have a car. Is there like a local game store that, that you like and you're like yeah dice dojo and so i'm like let's just go there and fill up my prius with <laughs> as many games as we can yeah you made them and, very uh, happy that day we oh, still absolutely. do and they make us happy like we've whenever possible we get our games from them and so it's a great relationship they contact us if they're aware of like uh, game conferences they, they've mm-hmm. been reaching out to to make sure we give students the opportunity to uh, to showcase, you know, prototypes of their own games uh, whenever mm-hmm. possible. You know, actually, I don't remember, you know, I don't know, I can't speak for you, but I do remember feeling like a continual anxiety because I think there had been a, a lot of naysayers uh, or skeptics that, you know, that this place would work. I think generally the university has been a place of, you know, a reputation of very serious, you know, inquiry and you know fun and games has no place here that that's at least a vibe that sometimes gets uh, perpetuated and so our our key job was to like prove that hey this place is going to you know be popular people are going to want to be here and we were sort of successful from from the outset and a lot of the, if we've had problems since then it's it's largely because we are really popular and we don't necessarily have the staff resources or the infrastructure to do all the things that people want to do when they enter our space and see the kind of possibilities we can uh, enable. One one thing I'll say about the University of Chicago, many people um, like Ken saying, one of the sayings that students have is that this is a place where fun comes to die. It's on t-shirts. It's on t-shirts, right? Like we have students who are like, yeah, this is our motto. And, you know, this, the university is really, it has a really strong liberal arts education, which makes it a really theory heavy school. Um, There's not a lot of practice based work or people like making and creating things. There's also not a lot of like open space where students can, you know, sit at large tables and move things around and design. There's no really large design space. So this was that moment when Kent and I came in and we're like, okay, both of us coming from these artistic, creative making backgrounds, like we, we understand the types of schools that typically have these environments. Um, the culture that needs to happen in order to make an environment where people feel want to feel collaborative and want to make things or play things uh, with one another. And so when the space opened, I think just by, by virtue of being in this open space with these tables, these bright, colorful chairs, being able to walk in and see a board game collection, even see 3D printers in the space was really exciting for a lot of people. And there was this moment where like we trained our student staff to sit, to welcome every single person because we also know that uh, the game space, the tech space can be very unwelcoming to certain groups of people. And so we wanted to counteract that general negative vibe while also slightly pushing back on this idea that this is a place where fun comes to die. It's like, no, fun is thriving here and you should totally come and hang out with us. This is not a quiet study space. You, you are shushing other people who are actually having fun. You know, Ash is absolutely correct that the university has a history of being like focused almost entirely on theory. Ten years ago, the Logan Center for the Arts was built, and that was a long time coming. And it represented this huge step forward into the university, like supporting art practice. So it wasn't just us independently being like we need to do all this fun stuff. That was our mission. That was our that was our mandate. Was like you need to bring the kind of energies around art practice and bring them into this space where there are these other possibilities, um, where there's an intersection between sciences because, you know, 3D printing can be used to print medical equipment or prototypes of uh, industrial objects and whatnot. It can also be used to print tokens and pieces for, for a board game. And so figuring out what kind of unique collaborations and possibilities can happen when, when you bring this idea of creative practice and exploration into a different realm that historically has not had those kind of energies. 
if I were listening to this podcast and I was intrigued, and I know there's some level of public access and you can talk about that. I wandered down to the University of Chicago. I got on the train in my car. I took a bus. I walked. However, I got there. What would I encounter? What would I see walking in the doors? We're located on 5730 uh, 30 South Ellis uh, Avenue. Um, so we are in this building called the Career R Library. If you first walk in, you will be greeted by a awesome uh, front desk worker, DeAndrea. If you don't know where you're going, you could ask her. And if you're like, oh, I would like to go to the Mad Center, she would point you to the direction of glass doors that would be on your right. Um, and then you would walk in and you would see a huge open, you would first see a projector that would have some really awesome media art uh, film and some of Kent's machinima work on the <laughs> uh, projector. You would then be greeted by our front desk staff. They all wear blue lab coats. If you didn't know what this place was, they would be able to tell you. Um, they would also be able to give you a tour. If you took our access orientation quiz, you would be able to check out consoles. Um, we have all of the con uh, all of the latest consoles minus PS5 and all of the retro consoles, and they would point you to our retro corner. But you would see wide open tables, movable furniture, whiteboard tables. In the Westin Game Studio, you would see our entire board game collection, which anyone is free to look at as long as there's not a meeting happening in the space with faculty. But you can walk in, look at board games, talk about them, take them out, check them out at the front desk and play them um, in any of the open tables there. If you were to continue, you would then move into our sister lab, the Hack Arts Lab, uh, where it is our makerspace. And you would have 3D printers there. And you could watch all the students making 3D prints, or you could try to print your own. Again, if you took our quiz online to make sure that you wouldn't do anything crazy with our 3D printers. You would also then be able to see all of the cool equipment that the Hack Arts Lab has, including laser cutters, more 3D printers, um, some soldering stations. Yeah, new uh, filament recycling system. Mm -hmm. Which is excellent. And you would see probably Kent in the space doing <laughs> something super cool. So that's what you'd see in the space. And you'd see a lot of students in the space, not early in the morning, because it turns out we do not cater to morning people. Like, <laughs> we do in the sense that we're open, but like nobody is really there unless they have a class. It really starts to get popular like 11 a.m. and later on, especially in the afternoon. That is when there's a large number of people in the space making games, talking about games, presenting games, doing 3D printing and laser cutting in the space. People talking about engineering principles, some people trying to figure out quantum computing. It's a crazy, amazing space. Sounds really exciting and vibrant. Let's talk a little bit about the board game library, since it's a board game podcast, ostensibly. How large is it? What's the access like there? I can start on this one, Ash. There's a few titles that I got from Dice Dojo a few weeks ago that have not been added to our, our, uh, our checkout system yet, but I just pulled the list in. And not counting expansions, it looks like we have around 240 titles. So I think if you add expansions, it's like over 300. And access, when, when we first opened, again, because of what I was describing of just, you know, us really needing to get people into the space doing fun things, um, we made it very easy. It was just come on in, grab a board game and help yourself to it. Please don't take them out of the space. Don't steal our games. And I think we had only like two titles stolen when we reopened uh, after, you know, having to be essentially closed for over a year because of COVID, we decided to have our games be checked out. And the main reason for that is just to track usage so that we can get a sense of what are people playing? What are people neglecting? What are the games that are most popular, um, you know, to potentially interpolate data and get a sense of we, we could also even see what are grad students playing? What are undergrads playing? I don't know that we'll ever do that, but it's nice to have the option. And so, you know, uh, Ash kind of described how it works. We, we have a Canvas course. Canvas is the learning management system that a lot of universities use. And so students take a basic quiz, just sort of a policy quiz, just to make sure they kind of understand our ethos and uh, some of our procedures. It's a fairly low barrier to entry. And then they can, students, faculty, staff can check out board games. In terms of the general public, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, we we have not had a lot of time to see, like in November, uh, the Career Library where we're located open to the general public. But I'm not aware of 
neighbors or people from the general public who sort of wandered in to play games. If that was the case, I think we would advise our staff to maybe feel it out. If it seems like somebody's going to be coming back repeatedly, we could create a profile for them in our checkout system so that they could check games out and be added to that kind of data collection system. But I think, you know, if somebody came in and was just curious, I would encourage our staff, go ahead and let them just play a game. You don't need to check it out to them formally. You know, our, our rules are, are, are flexible. And so I think right now, uh, because of Omicron, things are going to be a little bit more limited access uh, for the you know, near future. If all goes well and numbers go down and it feels like it's, it's safer again for people to gather, I look forward to us going back to the state where when we're open, the building is open and people can come in and, and play games. Now, they might show up on a day when we've got all kinds of uh, events that we're sponsoring and they may not find a table, but summers in particular are really good times for, for non-university people to come by and, and uh, enjoy our, our resources, both our collection of retro game consoles, but also our board game collection. Ash, does that sound about right? That sounds amazing. We also, you know, we, we partner with colleagues at the university who do uh, mm-hmm. partnerships with community organizations, um, community members. And so, you know, before the pandemic, the summer of 2019, there were all sorts of wonderful gatherings in partnership with, with some of our colleagues at the Logan Center and groups that Ash has formed relationships with, where we would have, you know, neighbors from the community come in with, you know, of all ages and play video and board games. Very much hoping we can resume some of those activities this summer. Before I get to the question here, I want to ask you one last question, which is what do you see <laughs> as the future for the labs? Where do you think things are going? Again, let's take COVID out of it. You know, hopefully yeah, yeah. that goes away and things open up. What would you like to see in the spaces? What kind of plans do you have in place? Talk to me about what comes next. Ash, where to begin? Because, you know, there's a lot of... <laughs> We serve a complicated set of constituencies. So, you know, my answer will be to a large degree, I hope that we can just continue to do what we've done best, which is be a space full of possibility um, with an emphasis on kind of prototyping and creative exploration. A combination of a space that supports particular curricular activities and curricular possibilities in, in collaboration with, with faculty, but also you know, a quasi rec center for students who who need it. When I describe my job to to friends who I haven't maybe heard from in a while, and I'm trying to do it very quickly, I just say like, I help run a nerd paradise. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, whatever whatever facets of of nerddom continue to to mutate and evolve, I hope that we can continue to to support that. And that includes, you know, whenever possible, inviting members of the community. If there's one thing I would want to focus on, it would be increasing and deepening partnerships with uh, organizations and members of the community and having less of a sort of cliquish or siloed sort of uh, set of communities and really increasing like cross-pollination between different sets of students and faculty and, and, and just like mixing up all sorts of activities and groups of people uh, in, in ways that maybe don't exist elsewhere on campus or even in the city. Yeah, sounds like a really admirable goal. Ashlyn, how about you? Yeah, I'll plus one, especially that uh, last part about wanting to mix up uh, community and really kind of cross-pollinating um, people. Um, I love games so much that I have this need to continue to spread the gospel of games such that I really want the Western Game Lab to be a catalyst as a way of thinking about a lot of other different things. I want to be able to bring people in, whether that's from the community, you Chicago students, whoever, to say, look, if we're going to play a game like, I don't know, Agricola, we can all play it and talk about it. And then actually maybe talk about like, farming and sustainability, right? What does it mean to then connect up with faculty who understand this or other nonprofits who understand this and then start to have like conversations around uh, this or um, how can we use board games and and card games as a means to talk about medieval history or talk about what does uh, social deception even mean? How does that work in relationship to geopolitics? Um, So I want to like have people who don't typically have conversations around games and game-based rules to to then start having these conversations and really see where we can take 
the kind of thinking around games and game design and move it forward and, and move the entire industry um, in a very different and slightly weirder place to, to be. But also I think it'll be really, really interesting, especially since games are just really, really popular and are, are becoming just a, a more dominant standard. Um, and it can be another way of thinking in the same way that we have, you know, arts-based thinking or visual learning or sound-based learning, like we can have game-based learning be a new mechanism for passing along information. So that's where I would like to see the lab go. I don't know how to do that, you know, but we'll figure it out and post. <laughs> I love that. And Ash, I want a plus one, just weirdness. Like, <laughs> I love it. Weirdness as a fundamental goal. And yes. you opened up a whole other line of questioning I could take you down talking about game theory and games in general and learning and associated with games, but that'll just have to be another podcast, I guess, because I want to get you both into the Board Game Times minigame, my questionnaire. So Ooh. I promise it will be very easy. As I said, it's typically aimed at board gaming, but if you have to insert your own gaming preference, you go right ahead. So I've got a series of 10 questions. I'll just ask you both. I'll let you determine who's going to answer what when. Let's get going. Are you ready for All this? All right. Yeah. Okay, question number one. What is your gaming beverage of choice? Ooh. I will say it kind of depends on the game, but I do like a beer. (laughs) We don't have, uh, I don't think we're allowed to to serve alcohol uh, unless it's like some kind of donor party at at the Western Game Lab. So I'm going to say either water or if it's a game that I feel fairly confident already in and don't need to sort of suddenly uh, have to learn a bunch of ornate rules, if that's the case, I do not want to drink alcohol. But I'll just, you know, I play a lot of uh, Wingspan on Steam with my dad. And I really enjoy a nice, like, medium alcohol beer when I play Wingspan with my dad. I know that game very well at this point. So that's, that's my answer. I have three drinks of choice uh, and it really depends on the time and the game that we're playing, um, especially if it has like a lot of components and whatnot. So generally cherry vanilla Coke zero, it is good all the time. I can never go wrong with this beverage. The second one, it would probably also in the kind of alcoholic realm, I don't care too much for beer, but I really like a good, like, English cider, mm. like a nice kind of medium, mm. sweet, or dry cider. Can't ever go wrong with it. That usually means I'm playing board games in the evening. And then the last one is a nice, like, masala tea, like a nice spiced Indian mm. tea. I, I have my own masala mixture for tea. And I'm like, okay, it's like, it's cold outside. Got to get cozy. We are about to be in this for a long time. It's tea time. So good, Ash. Uh, so next question then, what is okay. your preferred number of players at the game table? Ooh, That's also whoa. context sensitive because it really depends on the game. Um, I actually, I actually, let me, because yeah, I, I have a, an answer for that. For me, I think it's five. It always has mm. to be an odd number um, because, you know, I, I like the potentiality of like people pairing up and leaving an odd person out uh, or alliances changing really quickly. I think it's really interesting. So five people, maximum amazingness. I'm not going to at all uh, disagree with that, but I'm reminded of, of a couple months ago, uh, some of our student staff uh, are really into seven wonders and I had noticed they were pr- playing it frequently and I'd been like, oh, I want to learn how to play this game. I had the like iOS version and didn't understand it. They convinced me, I, I want to say that seven was the ideal number for that game. I don't know that, it, I don't think it's because it's seven mm. wonders. Might've even been eight or nine. When when we were planning this session where I was going to get a sort of tutorial in seven wonders, I felt like there was a lot of chatter about, okay, we got to make sure we get X number of people because if it's five, nah, it's not, you know, it was Alex, I think, involved in this, doing the calculations of like the ideal experience of seven wonders was a larger number of players than I would have expected. So I'm going to say, you know, I would, I would want to talk to somebody who is experienced with the game that's being played and get a sense from them, like from their experience, what is the ideal number for that game? I love a good two-person game. I love games that are designed for two people uh, as well. Okay, great. So from big groups to small intimate yeah. groups. Yeah. All right. Here's, here's a couple that are, gonna, that are always fun. 
What is your most admirable gaming trait or behavior? So this is what I've been told by many people I play games with. I play, I, I'll play any game. I usually am not the most competitive though. I'm the gamer who is trying to obtain just really weird objectives. Like, oh man, if I'm playing Takedo, I'm like, I'm really just out here trying to collect these pictures. So I won't directly compete with play- people in an aggressive way. And people seem to like that about me and my play style. So just not an aggressive competitive player usually trying to do weird things <laughs> all right i like it i'm not competitive either and we've we've played with some some staff and colleagues who clearly like and you know i my uh, my parents are this way like they're sort of competitive with each other and get get like a little bit emotionally invested in like who wins or not and i'm not that way at all like if i win it's like oh cool that's fun but uh it's not at all my objective uh i am super not competitive so yeah, I I think that my answer is almost exactly the same. <laughs> I'm also remembering when we played uh, Imhotep uh, a mm-hmm. couple of years ago, and I think both of us were enjoying just like doing weird things that were maybe thwarting our fellow players who were more on a competitive streak, and we were like <laughs> just like kind of trying oh, to persuade baffle them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, this next question is time to fess up. What do you think is your least admirable? gaming trait or behavior? Ooh. Part of me is wondering if like our admirable trait is also like a double-edged sword. <laughs> also a right? liability. Where it's also a liability in the sense that like people who might want to be like playing really, really seriously or competitively are uh, annoyed by our antics. I recently learned how to play Magic the Gathering. And so, you know, I had like a black deck and a green deck mashed together. And I was doing this weird thing of like, like summoning all of my creatures back from the grave. And it was just getting nonsensical after a while. And for me, I was like, how long can I keep this engine going? And all of the people I was playing against were like, just destroy Ashlyn. And I was like, yo, I've I've been surviving for like 90 minutes now. Uh, how how long do people tend to play magic? Like, I'm curious. Let's keep going. Everyone seems to love this. So I think for me, it's a double-edged sword. If I get really excited about the weird system that I've just created for myself, a lot of people will be like, just stop playing the game. Like, please go away. Yeah, I would echo the first part of that, Ash, where um, when I'm at the game lab, like I try whenever possible, which is not as often as I'd like to to sit down with with some of our student staff and uh, and play something once in a while. And I'm often interrupted or I'm distracted by other things going on. And that combined with maybe a lack of a, of a sort of competitive drive would mean in, in many cases that maybe I'm not like digging in or taking the game quite as seriously as, as some of the other players are. Okay, I'm going to combine the next, question, the next two questions into one. Which is, what is a a type or genre of game that you love to play? And then on the flip side, just a type or genre of game that you don't enjoy. You know, I'll go ahead and field this one. And my answers are going to be sort of mild because I'm still, I still feel fairly new to this wondrous uh, current moment in which there's just like so many games one can play. But in the last three years since the lab opened, I've sampled a good number of games and I feel like I'm starting to to get a sense of, of my preferences. And I think that I really enjoy engine building games with, you know, Wingspan as a great example. And I have not played Scythe at a table and I'm kind of intimidated by the idea because I'm so used to the computer now, like <laughs> managing, you know, the all of the rules and what I can and can't do. But that also has an engine building component combined with the sort of like, you know, combat or I don't know, a sort of risk type element. And so I enjoy that game a lot. And I think while I in, have enjoyed playing Betrayal, which is, Ash, I think your your favorite game, I've really it's enjoyed so playing it with you and, and some of our other friends. And so I enjoy the company, but I think when there's a lot of story and reading involved and maybe even sort of like acting role-playing in that sense, I get a little bit more anxious or I'm not quite as comfortable. And I'll just give one more example. Like I briefly about, I don't know, eight years ago started, I played D and D. I never played it as a kid, but I played D and D with some friends who had played it as kids and would really get into like 
acting out what their characters were doing. And even though I like did theater and stuff as a kid, I just, for some reason could not, I just had trouble like participating. So maybe this goes back to your early question. I don't know that I was a great you know, person to play D and D with other than the fact that I would DJ, I would like play lots of like tangerine dream and music that would sort of create at least an atmosphere for the more sort of t- storytelling and kind of performative players. So yeah, I think if a game involves a lot of story and reading and sort of like a performance element, I'm a little less in my element. That was probably enough of a, a ramble. Ash. I like role-playing games. Like I've played uh, Dungeons & Dragons, Monsters of the Week, uh, Delta Green, things like that. Um, and I enjoy them. And I, I am really bad at role-play per se. Like, per se. like I don't act. I am the person who says this is what my character is going to do. And I'll have a conversation with like, you know, an NPC, but I'm not going to like put on a voice or anything like that. (laughs) So I, so I like to go like one step below that and go with games that allow like you playing as a character. um, And it is a little story-based. So Betrayal is like one of my favorite games. I also really love Fog of Love. Um, I like Fiasco because of how you can kind of set up the game and it's uh, it doesn't require a DM. So I really like games where, especially games you can explore and just like talk to another person and kind of figure things out together. You know, again, with Betrayal, like I like the aspect of like, it can be one versus many people, but it starts off cooperatively, uh, which is great. Or even games that, yeah, feel a little non-competitive. So Takedo is also a great uh, example of that. I'm partial to social deduction games. Like I like things like Coup and Werewolf. But then there are moments where I'm like, oh, if it's a little like, it becomes like extra, like competitive and like role playing in a way where I'm like, oh, I am not that good at social deduction. I am like social deduction light games. I'm really good at. So like Coup and Avalon, I'm like, yeah, werewolf. I'm like, I like being in a large group where then people don't notice me. But if it's like a group of 10 people, then I'm like, oh, I'm like 10% of this play group right now. And I feel too seen. I'm, I'm being perceived right now. And I don't know how to lie like that. Um, so those are some of my games that I prefer and dislike. I would love to just add, add one, uh, one sort of addition to my answer, which is I, I'm going to put in a vote for games that maybe aren't that sophisticated, but can be learned fairly quickly and played in a reasonable amount of time. And the example that comes to mind, because uh, it was a highlight of my last year, it was like right before my birthday, Ash and a couple of our other uh, friends and colleagues that we work with, we all played Jaws, the board game. Yes. (laughs) It's, It's new. It's from like 2019, I think. But it has a little bit of the vibes of like, Ash, as you put it, like an American style, like 80s board game, but it's asymmetric, like one player is the shark and the other three players are uh, the three other characters in the movie. And, um, you know, we were able to play the whole thing in what, an hour and a half, maybe. Yeah. Um, We had the rules out, but they're not that complicated. And it just was like sort of light and goofy, but weirdly a very faithful uh, adaptation of the movie. So that's like a plug for that particular game. I'm not going to say it's like totally brilliant, but I really love it. And part of it was it felt like you don't have to mm-hmm. be grounded in the last two decades of board games to like have fun playing Jaws. Oh, that's great. Okay, I've got a few questions left for you. Next question. What is a physical game component that you love? Meeples. I love meeples so much. I am always a little disappointed when meeples are just like solid colors. I think that's classic, right? But I'm like, but you could put images on the meeples. Like, what does it look like to have little components that are like, ah, instead of playing pandemic, which is like these little random tokens, like, what if I looked like a little doctor or I looked like a person in a hazmat suit? Like, meeples have so much potential and I love them so much. They're just so cute. I'm going to say, the game board um, and Oath again is maybe a good example. I, that board is just beautiful. It's actually a, a sort of polyprene mat. I'm I'm now a fan of that type of board. So you can just kind of roll it up. And I'm trying to think of other examples, but the kind of game board where maybe you've never played this game before. You open up the box, you open up the board, 
and you're immediately you immediately feel this sense of like wonder and possibility and maybe even mystery at like okay this you know when when there's symbols or even a key or just you know beautiful artwork the sense that you could lose or you could invest a bunch of time and and sort of escape um your your anxieties and worries by getting drawn into whatever world uh this this game board represents all right. I want to give you props for that. You're the first person who ever has mentioned the game board and maybe it's because it's yeah, maybe it's just because it's so obvious that people forget to think about it. There's something that's really wonderful about opening a box and seeing like wonderful art on a board and that being the the draw. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Absolutely. Great great answer. I okay. think it's just one of those things people we all go straight to the little bits and pieces and uh mm-hmm. you know, the game board is what we're all gathered around. So that's a great answer. Okay, next question. What is a game you really want to play, but you never have? Gloomhaven. Like we've had that game in our our collection for like three years. And that box is just so huge. And I just look at it all the time and it feels like a type of game that I would want to play. It it has like the storylines, campaigns and the bits and all of it. And I'm just like, I don't think I have time to learn it. Oh, and, and I don't have like a group of people. Like I know, Ken, I could be like, hey, you should totally play this game with me. But I'm like, I feel like we need a few more people and it just feels like a huge undertaking. But I yeah. really want to play it. It uh, is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I have it a regular sense. Gloomhaven group, so oh, I know, but okay. it is a lot. Okay. I have my answer. It's Spirit Island. It's one that I have not yet played. It seems great. Uh, one of our former student staff members highlighted it as a game that had a kind of anti-colonial foundation uh, as opposed to the Catans of the world. And that's intriguing to me, but uh, it, it requires an investment of time, at least to, to initially uh, to understand it. But yeah, that's my answer. That one I can totally teach you how to play. Oh, that good. one I have played. Great. Together we are powerful. Okay. All right. Let's, let's, uh, let's pledge to play it. Great game. You'll have fun. Okay, finally then, a game you would like to recommend and why? Ooh. Ash, you should go because I feel like I've kind of done that in passing already. But Well, you uh, did mention Jaws. I mentioned Jaws. Yeah, you yeah, did mention yeah, Jaws. I, I, I will rep Jaws for sure. <laughs> and I've, I've said sh- enough about Wingspan and every, you know, everybody, anybody who pays <laughs> attention to board games knows what, that would be the, a very boring answer, I feel like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, I, it usually depends on who is asking that question. I don't know if I have a game that I recommend mm. to just, like, a broad swath of people. But I will say, if you don't have people who are used to playing board games or anything like that, and I think I mentioned it, Fog of Love. It What I like about this game is, it's one, it's two-player. And you're basically simulating a relationship it's fun for people who are in relationships or not in relationships. And you are playing as a character. Each, everyone has their own goals and it's really a fun game to just watch nonsense take place. And a lot of people that I've played it with aren't board gamers and they get really into this game. So yeah, I'd say fog of love and it has multiple different cover covers arts, depending on, uh, your own uh, sexual orientation. So, you know, have fun at it. But it's really, it's really great. I haven't played it myself, but I understand it's, it's just a really different take uh, as mm-hmm. a game overall, which sounds uh, fascinating. So great recommendations. Yeah. I'll add one that just came to mind. I'm going to recommend Parks. It combines a lot of what makes Takedo really, really pleasurable, but with some more complicated mechanics. It has beautiful art. And Ash, I don't, we haven't played this yet, but it has like little animal meeples little Ooh. animal shapes that are that are quite lovely so it's just like physically very pleasurable to you know play with and i feel like it, it strikes a nice balance of being just complicated enough to to be replayable but simple enough that you know uh, it's not a huge lift to learn it although you you will want to keep the rule book out for the first few games oh delightful sounds like you had ashlyn at animal meeples yes <laughs> <Yeah>. absolutely <laughs> All right. Well, congratulations. You made it through the mini game. Those are all the ah, questions I have for right. you today. Awesome. Well done. Uh, I always like to leave the last couple of minutes of the podcast to just kind of go back through the basics of where people can find the labs. I know it's not mm. really open to the public at the moment, but just kind of cover some of the basics. Uh, Kent, Ashley, I don't know which of you wants to take that, but just sort of a reminder of who you are, what you're repping and where it is. 
Sure. Uh, I'll feel this, but Ash, jump in if I miss anything or anything mm-hmm. wrong. So uh, yeah, as, as you sort of stated at the outset, we, we run the Weston Gain Lab and the Hack Arts Lab in the Media Arts Data and Design Center, which is located in the John Carrar Library, 5730 South Ellis Avenue, which is tucked back about a half block west of Ellis on the uh, Science Quad at the University of Chicago. I believe it's just MAD Center, M-A-D-D center.uchicago.edu. We tend to keep our hours uh, updated. In fact, I need to do that to, to post the hours for next <laughs> week. That will have information about like uh, when we're open to the public. I think that you know generally we are. I think by the time this airs, um, assuming that numbers continue to go down, I don't think there's going to be huge obstacles for people coming in. So I think it's fairly safe to say that people can wander down and, and uh, come into the lab. We don't have a phone, so you'll sort of have to either email us. You can email us at madcenter, M-A-D-D, center at uchicago.edu. Ash and I both get those emails. Does that cover it, Ash? That's beautiful. All right. So there you go. Make sure when things get clear, you take a trip to the south side, or if you're already on the south side, wander on over and uh, visit the Hack Arts Lab and the Western Game Lab. I know I'm going to do it myself. It sounds like a really invigorating place to visit. I look forward to meeting you two in person and chatting about this, but just sounds like a really stimulating place to be and to think and talk about games and all sorts of things. Thanks so much for inviting us to do this, Clark. Uh, And please do come by. Oh, you're now officially the best friends of the lab. Yes. <laughs> I love yes. it. And you're best friends of the pod. So hit us up after this. We can send you a list of the games that we have. And if there's something that you're curious about, uh, maybe we can like make a time to play with you. A chance to game? I'll take that yeah, up anytime I get it. Thanks again for both of you being on the cast today. Best of luck to you and look forward to hearing more about you in the future. Thanks so much, Clark. Thank you. And that is it for this week's interview. My thanks to Ashlyn and Kent for spending some time with me and telling me all about the Weston Game Lab and the Hack Arts Lab. If you find yourself in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago sometime, make sure you drop by and check it out. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please let me know about it. You can always reach me at Clark at BoardGameTimes.com. That's Times with an S. Or on the Board Game Times page on Facebook. Always looking for suggestions about new guests and love to hear your feedback on what you're liking or not liking about the podcast. If you'd like to help me out, please tell your friends and make sure you rate and review the podcast wherever you find it. Hopefully that will help get the word out. I'm told it does. As always, thanks for listening. Play lots of games. Be good to one another. And may all of your board game times be the best of times. Take care. Take care.